This episode of the Matt Levine Magician Podcast is sponsored by Private Backyard Screenings. Yeah, you heard that right. Private Backyard Screenings. They could bring movies, live sports, video games, trivia, plenty more, all to the comfort of your backyard for prices starting at $150. Send your inquiries to privatescreenings2020 at gmail.com or you can text or call 908-418-7122. On this episode, we have New York Times bestselling author and University of Delaware alum, Jeff Perlman, to talk about his newest book, Three Ring Circus, about the Kobe Shaq Laker years. The book comes out on Tuesday, September 22nd. You can still pre-order on Amazon, barnesandnobles.com, or whatever local bookstore uh, you go to. So be sure to check out Three Ring Circus, and I hope you guys all enjoy this interview. Thanks. Have a wonderful weekend. See you next week. So hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Matt Levine Migration Podcast. I'm especially excited for this episode. Uh, of course, we have co-host Noah Levy with me. And then we also have New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman. How are you? You forgot to say, and University of Delaware grad and disciple <laughs> of the Dan B. Levine, because he was Dan B. Levine. School yeah. of Journalism, School of Journalism. So you got to throw I, that in there. I was reading through some of his uh, newspaper clippings today. And I just, I did a control F uh, Dan Levine, but nothing came up. You had to put the B in there or else it wouldn't come up. So you do not, you do not call your dad, Dad B Levine. You just call him dad. No. Yeah. I just call him dad. Okay, there was a time period when we were at, at the college newspaper. I know we'll talk about this later, but where um, it was a trendy thing to put either your first initial go by like, J. Robert Perlman, like that's my middle mm-hmm. name, Robert, or to go with the middle initial. I always just went with Jeff Perlman. I've been very consistent throughout my career. So, you know. Jeff Perlman's got a great flow to it. How many kids do you know your age who, name, who are named Jeff? I, I wouldn't be able to say one. No, or do you know any Jeffs? No, not many. It's but, a very loser name in 2020. But Dan, so, so is Dan. Like, I don't, I don't really know any kids named Dan. Daniel's a much more common name still. Yeah, Daniel, maybe Daniel or Daniel. Biblical, blah, blah, yeah. Anyway. So, like, what, what has life been like for you? You're, you're living throughout a pandemic in California, which I'm sure that's been interesting. I, I see your Twitter feed every day. You're, yeah. you're a little outraged. Uh, yeah, I'm not happy. <laughs> I, uh, my kid, are, you, are you guys um, fully homeschooled? Yeah, all virtual. Yeah, so so are my kids. And that, you know, sucks for them. My daughter's a senior in high school. What, what year are you guys? We're juniors. Juniors. So, you know, it's a sucky year to go, way to go through high school. And... But I live in a part of California. People think, oh, California, it's this big liberal state and blah, blah, blah. But like people where I live, a lot of idiots. And they just <laughs> think, oh, it's nothing. And oh, we'll hang out. And I mean, like we had a block party recently and we didn't go. And it was supposed to be a social distance block party. We couldn't go because my wife was sick. And I look out the window and like everyone's like in each other's faces, <laughs> like drinking beers. And I'm like, you are the dumbest fucking people. I'm sorry, the dumbest yeah. people ever. You know? So, yeah. yeah. So you you have a book coming out, Three Ring Circus, out Tuesday, September twenty second. Correct, I got the date right. You did. Um, Three Ring Circus is about Shaq, Kobe, and Phil, uh, three people that weren't alive. Uh, I mean that we weren't we weren't alive to like really see in action. So you're doing this. That's a out curse. That's a bullshit thing to say to a person. You're basically saying what you're trying to say is, hey, old writer. <laughs> You're going to be dead and we're still going to be living in 40 years. So how about that in your face? And I just want to say I resent that. But I totally wish I would have gotten it. I, I wish I got to see Kobe, uh, Kobe Shaq and Phil 
and then yeah. Michael Jordan win, win six rings. Like, I wish I was alive to see that. And kind of having to, to read it and to watch it, it's painful. It shouldn't be, first of all, because um, we all have those things. And also mm. you have, to me, the NBA right now is terrific. And yeah, yeah you're not getting, you didn't get Kobe and Shaq, but you got, you got LeBron. Mm-hmm. He's freaking prime with it. I mean, fair. a lot of amazing stuff going on in the NBA right now. So I, mm-hmm. every generation, I didn't get to see Bob Cousy <laughs> or Bill Russell or Will Chamberlain. Like we all have our, you know, but um, yeah. yeah. And because the Eagles won the Super Bowl, I'm set for life. I'm set for life. Wait, you didn't tell me you're an Eagles fan. Uh, I'm a huge Eagles fan. I got to shut this off. Sorry. <laughs> Weird family. Weird family. You talk, your dad's a Giants fan, right? No, he's, he's an Eagles fan too. Eagles fan too. All right, I thought I didn't remember. I'm a Jets yeah. fan. Yeah, I'm a Jets fan. So. Oh, I feel bad for you. You should feel bad for me. <laughs> should feel bad for you. Wait, let me tell you something real quick. I want to tell you mm-hmm. something real quick. Why I'm a Jet fan, the quick story. My brother's eight. I'm six. My brother says, I'm going to be a Giants fan. We're at the kitchen table. I say, all right, I'll be a Jet fan. My brother would not, he would not recognize Eli Manning if he walked up to him or Lawrence Taylor or Barkley or any. He wouldn't have any idea. <sighs> Meanwhile, like he stopped caring about the Giants the day he said he's a Giants fan. Meanwhile, I'm saddled with 40 years of crappy football for that one pathetic reason. <laughs> That's not fair. Not fair. No, we're not fair. Oh, my gosh. I, I can't believe, like, you, you haven't give, given up your Jets fandom just because of your brother's comment. Because I'm not like your dad, where you're going to be like, <laughs> oh, I'm a Sonics fan now. Hey, you know, like, look, the Jets are owned by a horrible right-wing Trump appointee moron named Woody Johnson. Mm-hmm. They haven't drafted well in my lifetime. They could have had Dan Marino. They took Ken O'Brien. They could have had a million guys. They could, they could have had Lamar Jackson. We get Sam Darnold. But it comes with it. It's almost like being Jewish, right? You, it comes with the suffering and the pain. That's what we're supposed to – and the neuroses. So being a Jet fan is – if you are Jewish, I think being a Jet fan is basically the same thing, so it's very good. And Shana Tova to uh, all of our Jewish listeners out there. You as well. I will not be attending synagogue this year. No, we, we will be attending virtual services. That sounds exciting. So what was the ins- inspiration behind Three Ring Circus? That was a, a long-winded uh, intro for our listeners. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, um, I wrote a book called Showtime about the Magic Johnson era, and um, I really enjoyed it. Like, I really enjoyed it. I was living in New York at the time. I was coming out to L.A., palm trees and sunshine. The Lakers organization was awesome. And that book ended with Magic Johnson's HIV announcement. Again, before you guys were born, but you know the situation. He had to, he had to announce he had HIV. And then they had this quick rebound where they get Kobe in the 96 draft. They signed Shaq as a free agent. A couple years later, Phil Jackson becomes a coach. And they have this reemerging dynasty. And I just thought it was a really interesting sort of narrative and storyline. And also, I live out here, so it was much more accessible. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Big stars, big names, big team, a lot of success. Yeah. And, and so you're extremely known for kind of like researching like the heck out of your books, like mm-hmm. 300 to 400 interviews. So what were some of your favorite interviews during, during Three Ring Circus? And did you use any of the people that you interviewed for Showtime uh, for, this, for this book? Good question. I used Jeannie Buss, who was the owner. She was, you know, both times. A um, couple of other people crossed over, not a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say like sitting down with Shaq was really cool. I'd never met him before. Yeah. Flew down to Atlanta for it. The funny thing about Shaq is um, his hand is so enormous he was drinking a soda and it looked like he was drinking a mini soda. Like it actually looked like he was like, it was a total optical illusion, but his hand is just so huge. And at one point when I was interviewing him, his daughter called and he had to step away and it was on FaceTime. 
And she's like, hey, daddy, do you remember that person I went to high school with? Well, her mom just died. It's so sad. And Shaq goes, listen, I'm going to pay for all the funeral. Make sure I get all the bills, blah, 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 blah. And this is the guy who oozes something really, you know what I mean? Like he oozes a kindness and a warmth and an empathy and a decency that kind of comes off in person as well. Yeah. That was cool. And then I spent eight hours with Phil Jackson driving around Montana, which was really cool and unique and funky and, you know, long. And uh, it's really one of the funs of this job is being able to do that kind of stuff. You, you just said that so casually, just spending eight, eight hours with, with Phil Jackson in Montana. Like, I would be so intimidated by, like, people like those, like, legends. What, what was that like? What happens is, all right, so it's funny. I remember, again, being in Delaware, at Delaware with your dad. And I do profiles of, like, members of the Delaware basketball team. Mm-hmm. So you go, all right, you're going to interview Anthony Wright, the forward for the Delaware men's basketball team. I was far more nervous doing that than I am doing this. And what that really is more than anything is experience. And having done this long enough where, first of all, I've seen behind the curtain, you know, I've seen everything. Like I've seen, I've been to locker rooms, I've been to clubhouses, I've had athletes yell at me, I've had athletes hug me, you know, it's like across the board. They're just human beings. Like they're just human beings. And Phil Jackson, if he walked up to me and said, hey, screw you, get out of my face, I'd say, all right. And if he came up to me and said, Hey, this is great. Okay. Like whatever you do in life, you just, as you, as you do it more and more, you become more comfortable with it. You know, Shaq, no nervousness whatsoever. Phil Jackson, no nervousness whatsoever. If I had Trump tomorrow or Obama tomorrow, I just don't think I'd be nervous. I think I've done this long enough. How did you get in touch with, how did you manage to get Phil Jackson and Shaq's like contact information? So, um, I am kind of friendly. I have a good relationship with the owner of the Lakers, Jeannie Buss. Mm-hmm. And she actually used to date Phil Jackson as well as be the owner of the Lakers. Wow. And I emailed her one day and I was like, I don't give any advice how to get in touch with Shaq. I mean, with Phil. And she said, um, well, let me try emailing him. And she wrote, she wrote me back and she said, here's his email address. He said he would talk to you. And initially he said, why don't we do the interview over the phone? And I was like, would you let me fly to Montana and talk to you in person? And he's like, sure. I said, great. With Shaq, you know, he works for Turner, obviously. Uh, he does, you know, TNC. So I, um, I just reached out to the publicist and I said, I'm working on this book. Blah, 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 blah. And he said, all right, fly down to Atlanta in three weeks and we'll sit down and we'll get you up with Shaq. And that was it. And, and how, long did you get, how long did you get to speak with him? Like, was it hours or just like, he was like, all right, I only have half hour with you, then I got to go. Shaq was about an hour and 20 minutes. Phil Jackson was eight hours. <laughs> we literally drove, stopped for lunch, went back to his house had dinner at a restaurant. It was like if you, if like, there was some contest for like spend a day with Phil Jackson in Montana, mm-hmm. you know, and people were bidding and bidding and bidding. It's like, I won. And all I had to do was pay for airfare. Did you, oh, oh, you didn't even pay for the meals. He paid? No, I did pay for the meals. Oh. Yeah, but I'm just saying it wasn't, yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned like these guys being human as, as well as athletes. So is there anything special about being in the presence of guys like Shaq or Phil, or are they just more human when they're around you being interviewed? See, that's a great question. I would say um, at this point in my career, no. Like I would, I'm just as interested in interviewing the guy at the end of the bar or the guy who collects the trash or the guy who extracts teeth. Um, It's more about the story. Like to me, it's about the stories. Like when I was in college, it was like, I remember, I got to cover my first ever baseball game when I was at the University of Delaware. They got me, I got credentials to a Philadelphia Phillies game. 
and I walk into the clubhouse for the first time. My hands are coated with sweat. And I'm like, oh, excuse me, Mr. So-and-so. And you're just terrified because these guys are larger than life, right? But the longer you do this, they just don't feel larger than life anymore. They've had interesting experiences. You're excited to talk to them. But again, if I were doing a book on the garbage men of Orange County, California, I'd be just as excited to talk to the guy collecting the trash or driving the truck as I would Shaquille O'Neal. It just comes with time, you know? It's like, I would say, if you want to stay a sports fan, like if you really want to stay a sports fan, do not become a sports writer. Because it, it does, it's very hard. Like if you said to me, oh, who are your teams? Present tense, who are your teams? Maybe the Jets a little bit, but generally I don't have any anymore. I just root for good stories and topics. Hmm. So when you're writing your first book, like one of your first books was uh, Boys Will Be Boys, the Dallas Cowboys one. Yep. Like when you had to meet some of those like big names, were you were you intimidated by them like back in 2008, right? That's when the book came out? I think maybe. Uh, I'm not sure of the date, but probably. <laughs> not really. It's more like, all right, I find it more intimidating to be in a group setting. Like Michael Irvin wouldn't talk for the book. So I, um, I have a good story about this. Michael Irvin wouldn't talk for the book. He was being inducted into the Hall of Fame that year. So I got credentials to the Hall of Fame and I interviewed him in a group setting. And I'm actually more nervous interviewing people in group settings where other people are hearing your questions. Now, here's one of my great moments. I'll tell you a great moment of my career. At the Hall of Fame, after they do the Hall of Fame ceremonies, every player has their own party in a tent on the grounds of the Hall of Fame. So it's a huge grounds. So they set up tents and Mike Irvin's parties here. Mike Irvin's party was like the shindig bash and all the old cowboys were there. And I was, obviously was not invited to Mike Irvin's <laughs> Hall of Fame party. So I snuck in. I actually went under the tent and snuck in and looked around. And there was a security guard walking around and I was watching him the whole time. So he would go this way, I would go this way. And I, my closing scene of that book is Michael Irvin dancing with his wife at his own Hall of Fame party, which I got because I snuck into Michael Irvin's Hall of Fame party. Those are really the moments that are electrifying and fantastic. That, that's incredible. Right. Because I, I was reading, I'm almost done with Showtime. I haven't finished it yet. But a lot of these parts in Showtime, it's almost like a, a regular story. It's not like facts. It's like you have the dialogue down and everything. Mm -hmm. Like in your interviews, how are you able to get so much out of your subjects and kind of make it like a story type of feel? Great question. First of all, the one area I'm, a la uh, I'm willing to be a little lax on, not lax on, but a little, if someone's like, so Shaq says to me, you know, so Phil, Phil walks up to me and he says, hey, you need to be more serious. And I said to him, fine. Like, yeah. he's telling me a 15-year-old story. The odds that Phil Jackson literally said, you need to be more serious, as opposed to saying, I want you to be more serious, or I'd appreciate if you're more serious. It's one area where I'm, a, I'm, I'm willing to give some leeway, mm -hmm. conversations. If, you know, if someone says to me, this is what he said, I'll, tell, I'll be like, okay. You know, if it matches up with the time and the circumstance, I'm okay. Otherwise, though, it's, it, and that's a great question. Otherwise, um, it's just about asking about the minutia. And a lot of it is about stopping someone and saying, like someone may say to me, I remember driving to my first Laker camp, okay? And I say, hey, Dad, this, I don't want to interrupt, but what kind of car do you drive? Do you remember? What kind of car did I drive? Yeah, it's just important for the details. Well, it was a 78 Buick. Oh, what? Do you remember what color it was? It was olive green. Do you remember what make it was? It was a Buick, whatever, Skylark. Like those details are really, really important to me. I would say like this, this isn't just a cup. It's a Starbucks cup. It has a white sticker on it. It has a lid on it, blah, blah, blah. 
it's the devil is in the details. So I'm very, 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 when someone's telling a story, I'm always thinking, all right, what are the details here? What are the little details I need to extract from this story? You know? Did you get to speak with Kobe uh, while you're writing? For the- it's the one bummer of this experience, I would say, is I did not. I, he came out with Mamba mentality while I was working on this book. Um, he was promoting that pretty heavy. I, I mean, I was told early on I wouldn't get him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. Every book I've written, there's been a, at least one major character I didn't get. My first book was about the 86 Mets. I did not get Daryl Strawberry, Dwight Gooden. Brett Favre, I didn't get Brett Favre. Walter Payton, Walter Payton was dead. Showtime, yeah. I didn't get Magic or Kareem. Um, so you make up for that with dogged, 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 hard-nosed reporting, and you just do your best. And do you, when, when you're not able to get like a centerpiece like Kobe, per se, are you making sure that like the surrounding characters are that, are that much stronger, I guess? That much stronger? No. All right, it wouldn't be fair. The thing is, it's not fair to, example, Shaq talks to me, Kobe does it. Mm-hmm. It'd be very easy to then be like, well, I like Shaq more than Kobe, therefore I'm going to paint him in a more, that's a very natural human thing to do. I, mm-hmm. I think it's really, really important not to do that. And if Kobe, first of all, Kobe never owed it to me to talk to me. I'm writing a book. He doesn't get any editorial saying he doesn't make any money off it. He doesn't owe me anything. So what it does do if someone doesn't talk to you is you say, okay, I'm really going to grind here. I'm going to call a million people from his high school. I'm going to call a million people who know him. I'm going to track down his trainer. I'm going to talk, track down friends. I'm going to track down opponents, you know, and, um, so that's sort of what you do, but you don't want to be biased against someone because he doesn't talk to you. He does not owe it to me to talk to you. What was your favorite memory or, or what was your favorite story about the dynamic between Kobe and Shaq uh, during that time? I mean, there's a, I'll tell you one thing that happened is um, it just kind of spoke to it really well. I interviewed a guard for the Lakers named Kareem Rush and he was a backup guard. And I interviewed him at a Starbucks out here in LA. And I didn't have that much time with him. I probably had 40 minutes with Kareem Rush. And Kareem Rush on that 03-04 team, which was the last year when they lost to Detroit in the finals, Kareem Rush was a young player on those teams. And he thought, like, this is great. Everything's great. Like, I know Shaq and Kobe aren't best friends, but we made the finals, and this organization's awesome. And so he told me that after they lost to the Pistons, the Lakers had a little team function. And uh, Kobe walks in, and he says – to Kareem Rush, there's no way I'm ever playing with that motherfucker again, <laughs> right? And that was the moment you could actually see Kareem Rush, even in the interview with me, his head just, or like the deflation of a balloon. Like, like this is not what I signed up for. This isn't what I thought. I just thought that moment really like, you, you won with this guy, you're playing with the most dominant big man of a generation, mm-hmm. but you're just fed up with it and you don't want to do it anymore. I just thought that was a really interesting quote to get from a guy. So that, that must have been like the lowest of the lows. Was there ever a time when they actually got along outside of just winning? Yeah, they were They were never buddy-buddy. Mm-hmm. Never buddy-buddy. Like they weren't hanging out with each other. They certainly had moments. I guess you said outside of winning, which I think <laughs> the winning is the thing that – thing is I've covered a lot of teammates through the years, and we as fans and you guys as young fans, I'm sure like this, there's something appealing about teammates liking each other. There's just is. There's something appealing about the idea of guys being buddy-buddy like – uh, LeBron and AD hanging out together and playing Xbox together or whatever. Like it's appealing. <laughs> it doesn't happen that often. You know, like I covered the San Francisco giants in baseball when Barry Bonds was their star. I never wanted him. They had a second baseman named Jeff Kent. I never wanted Bonds and Kent to be buddies. They hated each other. They hated each other. They weren't going to be buddies, but they were both great players like Shaq and Kobe. They were never going to hang out. They were never going to go out to dinner. It wasn't their thing. 
but they just happened to be two of the five best players in the NBA. So it worked out, but there was no warm and glowing, like, except for the winning, there's no off the court. Like, I love you. You're the best. Let's hang out. <laughs> Nothing like that. And, and as a sports fan, I guess like it goes back to your point. If you want to actually love sports, never become a sports writer. Because like from the outside looking in, like you want to see them being buddy, buddy. Like I think of like some of the guys on the Eagles. Yeah. I want Carson Wentz to be best friends with his star right. receiver or a star running back. But like you, you kind of like know deep down, Oh no, that's not the case. And the funny thing about it is like, if you think about it in a way, it's more beautiful the way it is. Like I always think like football fascinates me, mm-hmm. especially now in the world, right? You have these generally large white, offensive linemen from Nebraska and Oklahoma and Colorado. And almost all of them are probably, most of them are probably MAGA Trump guys, right? You have wide receivers. It's a little bit of a cliche, but to a certain degree, like young African-Americans, a lot of them growing up in the inner cities, they're certainly not MAGA guys. Mm -hmm. You have a quarterback. Sometimes he's, you know, who the hell knows which way he's going to go. And like the beauty of it all is they all come together and they do their jobs together and they bleed together and they experience something kind of beautiful together. And that bond lasts like that bond does last. And that's something we actually, as a people right now, like we should all be bonding over the fact that 2020 sucks or not. <laughs> We're just sniping at each other. And I feel like there's, there's are lessons to be learned from sports and that they're able to overlook these things. Oh, and I, I kind of, I want to say like the Drew Brees comment and then Malcolm Jenkins's. Uh, Jenkins reaction like in the offseason after Drew Brees made that comment about uh, n- not not uh, standing for the flag and how like Malcolm Jenkins got very emotional and very upset about it it kind of makes me think I wonder I wonder when everything's going well I'm sure their dynamic is fine but say everything's starting to like fall off are they still going to be friends at the end of the day or maybe they're not even friends they're just teammates just there the thing. it doesn't matter if they're friends or not Mm-hmm. It's a way overblown thing. It doesn't matter. Think about, yeah. um, think about the size of a football locker room. There are guys who will spend the entire year on the sand, the LA chargers, as an example, who never say anything more than high by. And mm-hmm. I actually always think one of the flaws of sports media is when we say, how does the team feel? It's like, how does the team feel? The kicker barely knows the quarterback. The quarterback barely knows the backup defensive lineman. The kicker is from Argentina the, the quarterback is from Bethesda, Maryland. The wide receiver is from, you know, Gary Indiana. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. It's just, do you have the most talent? Do you have a coach who puts it together well? And can you guys bond at least for the common good? That's yeah. it. Yeah. And transitioning back uh, to, like, the main storylines of the book. So after Kobe died in January, kind of like, what was your mindset? Did your mindset change about the book at all? Well, the book was pretty much done. I added a uh, author's note, a three-page author's note at the beginning because uh, I wanted to get it out there that um, the Kobe Bryant who you're reading about in this book is not the Kobe Bryant father, husband, entrepreneur. You know what I mean? Like, it's a different mm-hmm. guy. And, and I kind of worried also personally that people are going to be like, who is this guy to take advantage of Kobe's death and blah, blah, blah. And you just want to say, look, I wrote this book before he passed. I'm telling you right now, this is not the complete portrait of Kobe Ryan. It is a sliver of time. Yeah. Um, and I'm nervous about it. I'm definitely nervous about it. I'm worried about, I'm not worried about physically getting my butt kicked out here, but I'm, and I live in Southern California, but I'm worried about people taking it the wrong way. And I think people who love Kobe Bryant and see him as this dogged uh, hard worker 
competitor winner, like should continue to see him that way. And I hope they do. I'm not, I'm not in the business of bursting someone's bubble about their hero. Yeah, because I remember a few years back when the Walter Payton book came out, my dad read the excerpt in the Sports Illustrated about it. Yep. And like, he told me about how like you were getting like destroyed in the media because, because of like that excerpt. And I, I, didn't, I didn't get to read the book, but he said like Walter Payton was displayed in a bit of like a negative light too, right? Oh yeah, well, the, <laughs> so you can actually literally behind me, I'm pointing my thumb at the cover, that Sports Illustrated cover, which my mother-in-law had framed for me. Um, you are you like overall happy about that Sports Illustrated cover? Like, do you regret putting no. that excerpt into the book? Yes, oh. I regret having the excerpt that be the excerpt, but I'm not, I'm not mad at anyone. It was my fault. Mm. I, I was like, okay, um, it was a stupid judgment on my part. Like the book wasn't coming out for three weeks. The book wasn't about 90% of that book. 95% of that book is, is Walter Payton and kind of the greatness of Walter Payton. Mm -hmm. At the end of his life, he struggled a lot. It was really interesting material. There's no doubt about it. The, the backlash was fierce. The difference I would say is um, Walter Payton was unblemished in Chicago. He really was. He was basically Derek Jeter in New York that kind of level of like, where you're just like, this guy can do no wrong. This guy is unbelievable. Yeah. You know, he never makes mistakes. Kobe Bryant isn't that. You know, Kobe Bryant, we all know. We know about Eagle Colorado. We know he could be pain in the ass. We know about the acrimony between him and Shaq. I do think that it's a safety net a little bit for me. Uh, and and I, I've heard the J.R. Ryder story a couple times on Twitter. Yeah. Can you, can you tell that story for the listeners? Because sure. that, that story makes me crack up every single time. Yeah, it makes me crack up too. <laughs> I, um, in my career, I've probably knocked on about 10 to 15 doors. Like you can't get a phone number. Unannounced? Yeah, unannounced. You can't get a phone number and you just show up. You're like, well, I have an address. I'm just going to show up. Yeah. <laughs> it is the equivalent, the journalistic equivalent of being on a flight where the turbulence is really bad. Mm -hmm. And you just hope you're not going to crash, right? It yeah. generally works out, but it's scary. That knock and that weight is scary. I have an address for J.R. Ryder, a former Laker, just for one year later. I don't have a phone number. I'm in Arizona. He lives in Arizona. I figure, okay. I drive out and I knock on his door. Now, I don't know. It was a little early. I got there at like 930, which is probably inappropriately early to knock on someone's door. I acknowledge that. I knock on the door. Little kid answers. He's like, can I help you? I'm like, hey, my name's Jeff. I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. He's like, hold on one second. Woman comes to the door. I don't know if it's JR's wife or girlfriend. I have no idea. She's like, can I help you? I'm like, hey, my name is Jeff Perelman. I held up a book I wrote about the US of O. I'm like, I wrote this book. I'm trying to find JR Ryder for a book I'm writing. Uh, hold on one second. She goes back, close the door. I hear two people kind of rah, 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 rah. <laughs> JR Ryder comes to the door. I'm like, hey, JR. So my name's Jeff Perelman and I'm a writer and I'm working on a book. He goes, whoa, bro. Bro, wait, bro, you just, you show up, you show up, like, you just, bro, that is so bro, that is so bro, no. And I'm like, uh, and then he opens the door and he comes out and he's like, bro, that's not cool. And then he goes, bro, I mean, what's that book about you have? And I was like, oh, I wrote it about the USFL. He goes, is that Trump? Trump owned a team? <laughs> like, yeah, he's like, so what are you writing a book about? And I'm like, oh, the Shaq Kobe years, the Lakers. All right, man, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you. He ended up giving me, he couldn't do it then. He did it on the phone. Um, he gave me two hours. 
of awesome. So again, knocking on the door, it's scary. It'll probably get me shot one day, but yeah. <laughs> you know, there are some benefits to it. Is there a specific anecdote that J.R. Ryder told you that, that like really stood out to you or that was just hilarious? Well, his whole existence with the Lakers was hilarious. So J.R. Ryder was a really good NBA player who probably, probably has some mental health issues. And um, he, uh, at one point, he overslept a practice. And he, it was on the road. And he asked the hotel uh, clerk in the front desk to write him a note that he could give to Phil Jackson that they didn't give him a wake-up call. So he literally shows up at practice and gives Phil Jackson a note. Another time, he missed a bunch of practices because his car broke down. This was at home. But he lived 300 yards from the team practice facility. <laughs> he's just – he's an amazing, amazing character. There's another one where um, they're in Toronto and they have to go through customs. And J.R. Ryder definitely used to like this. He used to – he enjoyed the marijuana. And um, <laughs> he's walking up to customs and the dog starts going crazy, right, just barking at J.R. Ryder. And they have to pull J.R. Ryder aside. And apparently he smoked so much pot. He didn't even have any on him but his tracksuit smelled so much like pot that he actually got pulled into customs uh, security and the Lakers security guard had to go fetch him. See, He's like, a great how, character. How do you think the Lakers were so successful with constantly all this turbulence and all of this just, I think the word for it is chaos, just chaos always happening. The thing is, number one, they had more talent than anyone else and they had a better coach than anyone else. And number two, the only reason you know they're chaotic is because I'm writing a book about it and Shaq and Kobe were famous. Who's to say the Cleveland Cavaliers or the Detroit Pistons? Yeah. I mean, I guarantee you J.R. Ryder was not the only guy in pro sports smoking pot. Mm -hmm. I guarantee you Shaq and Kobe weren't only teammates who didn't get along. Um, you know, it's just like a light is shined on these things because there's a major team that was winning. But every team I've ever covered has stuff. Whether mm -hmm. it's two guys who hate each other, whether it's someone sleeping with someone else's wife, whether it's someone punching someone. They all have stuff. So do you have the talent and do you have the wherewithal to get past it? The Lakers happen to have two superstars, a great coach, and a lot of veterans who are there to kind of guide the way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it happens. And prior to like beginning to write books, when you're, when you're still just like a sports writer covering a beat, do you feel like some of these stories you learn more about as an author rather than being on the beat? Like, do you feel like you're more plugged in overall when you're, when you're writing a full book on a certain time period? As opposed to covering that team? Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting question. Let's say I was like, I'd been a Laker B writer during that period. I obviously would have a certain credibility that might help me with the players. They'll be like, oh, I remember you, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. On the other hand, I do come in with a complete blank slate. Like I come in and I'm, I just want to talk to everyone. I don't think I know anything. I don't think I don't have the background that Laker B writers would have had where they maybe they have their biases and prejudices about the team. I don't really have that, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, I don't think it's a disadvantage to have been a beat writer, but I don't think necessarily it's a disadvantage to come in just as an author with a fresh yeah. look. You know? like, and I also, I try to interview all the beat writers and get their takes and generally they're very helpful. Like, did you know nothing about like really what was going on with the, with the team prior to beginning to write the book? Well, I didn't hear you for that. I said again, I'm sorry. Did you like have no idea of like really what was going on before you started writing the book? I mean, I had. You had like an idea. Yeah. Yeah. I had the, I had the same knowledge you probably had or well, mm -hmm. someone who was around for it, maybe a little more, but like I knew Shaq and Kobe, I knew all the players knew about them. I knew about the organization well because I'd written another book on them, but no, I, I always say it's funny. Like you write a book proposal for these books 
And that's the first thing you do. You write a proposal. And if your book winds up anything like your proposal, you've done a shitty job as an author, mm -hmm. you know, because you should go in and report the hell out of this and, um, and find all kinds of new stuff. So it'd be weird if I wrote a proposal and I said, this is what the book is going to be. And then it actually came true. So you know? where did you, where did you start in the very beginning? where did you start? I mean, the first thing I do is like, I, uh, I track down as many media guides as I can find. So I will go on eBay and order every media guide from the Lakers of that era. And then I'll go through the media guides and I will try to, I'll make a, I literally, I'm, I'm old school. So I use Microsoft Word. I make a file for every single person, every person. Mm -hmm. Then I try tracking them down. And at the same time, I'm going through newspaper databases. I'm going on eBay and ordering every book that had anything to do with that time period. Um, so it's like this whole, you're building a library. Like by the time I'm done with this, I should have the biggest, 96 to 04 Lakers library on the planet. And at the same time, I should have this compilation of 400 interviews. And then when you're writing, you're kind of merging all that information together. That must be, you must have like fantastic filing abilities. No, I don't know how my, my <laughs> wife would laugh at you. If she heard you say that I am a mess. I am. I just do it all chronologically. So I figure out, I mean, you write it chronologically. Oh, sorry about that. Um, I just do it chronologically and um, I try my best and I've done this long enough that I have some systems built in, but no, I mean, my desk right now, you can't see it. It's a, <laughs> it's a crap den of hell, you know, it sucks. And, and you've made it a huge effort to, to promote your book on social media. And I, I thought that was very interesting. If there wasn't a pandemic going on, would you still be promoting the book the way you'd be promoting the way you're currently promoting three ring circus? Oh yeah. I, uh, one thing that's changed in publishing through the years is um, as the industry has struggled a little bit, you can't just assume they're going to give you a publicist and the publicist is going to set you up with them. Like you get a publicist, my publicist is great, but you can't assume they're going to, like she's working on X number of books at the same time. So my thing is no pride. I will call, I mean, I will call in every favor. Mm -hmm. I will do any podcast, even if it's some high school kid in New Jersey, I will do any <laughs> podcast. You know, like I really will. Like I would talk, and it's, um, I was, I'm joking about that. Like you say, Hey, do you want to appear in my podcast and talk about your, your book? Yeah. I don't care if five people listen. Of course I do. You're doing me the honor by talking, you know? So yeah. you just got to do it all. The difference during a pandemic is what sucks is there's a fun element to going into studios and like, all right, you're going to go see Colin Coward today. And you're going to go into the studio and we're going to pick mm -hmm. you up at this time. It's just fun doing a book event. It's fun. And now I'm stuck in my office, you know, not as fun. Well, I, I YouTube the uh, football for a buck uh, book interviews with Rich Eisen and Colin yeah. Coward. And, and, and those are like pretty, pretty, those are really cool considering that you went to college with my dad. And so now you're sitting in the same studio as Colin Coward and Rich Eisen. I know, but like, here's the thing you'll get it. Maybe get, I don't know, maybe with it. It's like, they're just guys who work in media. Like yeah. if your dad had pursued a course, your dad was a freaking great writer. If your dad decided I want to be a sports journalist for my life, would have been him. Like, there's no reason it wouldn't have been. Or like, I'm sure like, I remember being your age, mm -hmm. right? I, I don't mean to sound all grandpa's, but I remember being your age. And you think like, maybe you don't, but like, oh, this guy, he's written nine books and he wrote for Sports Illustrated and blah, blah, blah. Holy cow. And he's like, it's illusionary. Like, I was a kid in Mayo Pack, New York. I wrote for my high school newspaper. Then I went to college with your dad. I wrote for the college newspaper. I really wanted to be a sports writer really, really badly. I started at a newspaper and I was covering high school wrestling. Nobody knew who the hell I was. I locked into a job at Sports Illustrated. I got hired. As, like, for you, how old are you? 16? 
Yeah, 16. So you're 16, I'm 48. It feels like a huge line between us to you, but it's mm -hmm. not. I'm telling you, it's not. I remember everything about writing for my high school newspaper. It was not that long ago. I'm not that different than I was then. It's just with time, you pursue these things and sometimes you're lucky enough to get them. That's it. Incredible. But so, it's not, that's what I'm saying. Like uh, Colin Coward is this guy who wanted to be on radio and he wound up yeah, on radio. Right. Has, but like the guy, I'm telling you, the guy delivering your mail today is no less impressive than someone working in sports media. It's just a less public profession. Hmm. I'm not, I've never thought about it that way. It's true. Yeah. And you shouldn't be nervous around these people. You should never be yeah, nervous. Yeah. Whenever people are like, hey, Mr. Perlman, and I'm like, what are you nervous <laughs> about? Like I'm, I'm some guy from Mailpack, you know? I'm like, there's nothing. You're Jeff. Nothing. I'm Jeff, Mailpack. <laughs> exactly. If you called me Mr. Perlman, I'd be pissed at you. So what's next from here? So you have the book coming out on Tuesday. Do you have yep. any other side projects that you're planning to pursue? I'm working on my next book, which is uh, a book about uh, Bo Jackson, who hopefully you know who that is. Oh, yeah. Of course we know who Bo Jackson is. All right. You sure? Know her. Bo Jackson? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that's my next book. So I started working on that. So there's always, there's no rest. You know, there's always another project. See, Bo Jackson's career is very interesting because he, he was so good for just such a short period of time. Uh, there was a 30 for 30 on Bo Jackson, right? Or was it the football life? It was a 30 for 30 and everyone thought it was great. I actually didn't like it. I thought it was very incomplete. So I'm, uh, I'm oh. hardcore into Bo Jackson. Yeah. So why, why do you like Bo Jackson? Like, I just want to say, I see the thing that says less than a minute. Do you want to oh, switch yeah. to your other Zoom? Oh, yeah we, could, yeah. we could switch real fast. Did you email that to me? I don't know if yeah. I wrote it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I don't know what we were saying. What was I saying? Oh, we were talking about Bo Jackson, how you're unhappy with the 30, 30 for 30 uh, documentary that I found fantastic, but that's just me. Not unhappy. Unhappy is too strong of a word. I just thought there's so much of that story. It actually, I guess in a way it made me happy because there's so much to tell. And I feel like everyone talks about the 30 for 30 and such a, there's so much more to that story. So um, it sucks. So the one thing that sucks about pandemic really sucks is I really want to go to Alabama and report this thing. And mm -hmm. I haven't felt that comfortable flying. So I don't know what I'm going to do. You, you got to interview one of the Seahawks players who, uh, who got killed. I interviewed seven of them already. Oh, you've already interviewed yeah, yeah. them? Yeah. It was awesome. Dude, that's amazing. It's a great job, man. Pursue this job. I'm telling you, it's good. All right. So with that said, we're going to transition into the legendary days of the Delaware Review. Yes. Dad, you could uh, turn your camera on now. Ah, there he is. You got to unmute yourself. Yeah, I, I am unmuted. And Don't it, tell it, your dad what to do. It, it, is, is, it is not called the Delaware Review. Yes. It's uh, called the Review. The Review. So come on. You. And it was a five-star all-American newspaper. That's right. That's right. These kids today, they don't know. They don't, they don't know anything. No. So, so what was this experience like? Because it seems like you guys, you guys sometimes like Twitter DM about like crazy, like crazy Trump people on Twitter. But yeah. um, what, what was the experience like working together? You want to go first or me? Um, you can go first. All right. So your dad, first of all, your dad used to intimidate the hell out of me when I was a young, <laughs> I'm sorry. So I was, I came up as a freshman at the review and I was a little punk. I actually got fired from the student <laughs> newspaper by Josh Putterman and told not to come back briefly yeah. correctly because I was a little just cocky punk. But then your dad was, I don't know if that year, if you were the assistant sports editor or the sports yes. editor. No, I was the assistant that year. And the next year you were sports editor. Yes. And my, I was the well, Yeah, my junior year, I was either the assistant. Well, no, my sophomore year, I was the assistant. My junior year, I think they bumped me up to be like managing sports editor and they made you the sports editor. Yeah. Yeah. So 
your dad used to scare the hell out of me because your dad was like, you were, he was like, your dad was like hardcore. Your dad was like, we need to get this right. So first editor, I mean, I was young, but it's the first, I'd, I'd interned at my local paper in high school. And my, the editor there was very kind and blah, blah, blah. And your dad was like, this is how you do it. Blah, blah, blah. You need to get these quotes. You need to get it right. And it was like, I feel like you were way ahead of your time because a lot of the people there were just happy, like smoking pot and drinking. And your dad was like, this is how you, this is how you do it. And I am, um, it is no exaggeration to say, I learned a ton from your dad at the review. There's no exaggeration to say that. And he was the first, first editor I had who sort of wanted a writer to be like disciplined and get his facts down and get his stuff right. And it was hugely important in my career. Well, like in the, in the Showtime book cover, like this, I love this, this, uh, this note that you wrote to him. You wrote, right. Dan, you let an arrogant, annoying, immature ass write sports. Changed my life forever and never forgotten. It is still true. It's still true. Uh, it's, yeah. it's greatly appreciated. But I, I, I have to say that they're, they're, you know, they talk about in this world about impacting and affecting change. When you were 18 years old, I guess you were 18, when you were a freshman and you oh, yeah. came upstairs and you wrote that article about, it was a brilliant article. And this is the state of Delaware, it's a small state, but there's a huge Gannett newspaper for many years. Yeah. And this 18 year old guy comes in and writes the hell out of a story called Delaware versus Delaware State, the rivalry that never was. Okay, and this, this was an amazing piece of journalism about why the University of Delaware had never played any type of collegiate sport against Delaware State, which is down south in Dover, for those that aren't familiar with Delaware, and, and is primarily a, a black university, black, black school. And you want to talk about an amazing piece of research and you want to talk about reporting. And there were a lot of people at the review that ended up being so jealous, but I, I admired it. I admired the piece. I admired the fact that you had the balls to come in there and, and put something like that together and, and for it to be as amazing a piece as it was. And the bottom line was, I can't remember if it was like two months later or six months later, this piece yeah. was like six weeks. I think it was six or seven. Yeah. Weeks. Yeah. Suddenly the two schools got together and they made an agreement to play basketball together. And yeah. it was, but I mean, ultimately what we, what we really, or what Jeff was really getting at also was football because football at that point in time was Delaware's baby, you know, great team in the Yankee conference, but, and it took a number of years until that finally happened. And you, you actually wrote another piece um, a number of years later, you know, calling them out still for that. But, but my God, I mean, it, it, just a fantastic, fantastic piece of, of journalism. And, and from that moment on, everybody, I think people were intimidated to a degree. And Maybe they're just repelled by my disgusting <laughs> arrogance. I think that might have been part yeah, of it. Yeah, I mean, you, you, super cocky. Def you, you definitely were super cocky, but my God, I mean, the passion was there and you could see that. And, and we, we had so many great times. Um, like I, I remember when we would, you know, because back then everything was done in the car. We would drive up to Boston to cover a football game, yeah. stay overnight. Who, who would drive? We both would split it. I think your dad took most of the driving, though, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. 
And once you weren't with me, but once when I was driving back from Lehigh on the Paoli Turnpike from a field hockey game, yeah, I got pulled over by a cop driving 75 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. they, 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 they were going to suspend my privileges from like renting a uh, student car for a while. But, you know, I, it, it's funny because you, you mentioned that you learned from me. I learned from you. Um, you know, forget about the idea of like, you know, some of the stories and everything. But I remember and I, I think it was my junior year and I was being so thick headed and so <laughs> stubborn because you wanted to cover club sports. You wanted to do articles about the men's hockey team, which was a club sport at the time. And, oh, yeah, and right. you, had, you had such a valid point. And I was such an asshole. I was like, <laughs> no, this isn't a recognized NCAA sport. I mean, oh, yeah, I forgot about to, that. that yeah. And, you know, you, you pushed it and you pushed it and, and we ultimately did it. And I remember there, there was a very positive response to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you really showed me that there's other ways to look at something and you know just because there's like these straight lines it doesn't mean you can't attack things differently and and view things from through a different prism and you know most people that we worked with there they they didn't that wasn't the case please tell me please tell me you have told your lovely son about the bradley eubner incident (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh yeah yeah yep. jeff jeff also well there, there were a couple of bradley you no wait do you know the one which with uh roselle's daughter or, or <laughs> wait, you, i don't remember that one wait 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 let me tell mine first can i tell mine first sure sure okay we had a guy we worked with named bradley eubner who's a great really funny guy yeah and um we noticed okay i think i started doing this i would take credit for the beginning of it Outside the review, so the review was on the second floor of the student center. If you looked outside, there was a payphone there, okay? <laughs> oh, wait, actually, this is two things, two things in one. We used to call people, we got the number for the payphone, and we'd call the payphone and be like, oh my God, is this a payphone? We'd be looking at the window, we'd be like, is this a payphone? Oh my God, I think I, lo- I dropped my wallet in the garbage. Can you look in the garbage and see if the, pay- the wallet there? And people would be digging through the garbage. But the thing we did, Brad used to pretend to be a radio disc jockey. And he would call people and be like, hey, this is KTSR radio. You're the hundredth caller, blah, 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 blah. And he would do this over and over. And we would do it all the time. One night, your dad calls me in my dorm. It's like midnight, one in the morning. He's like, shit, we have to be at the review at 6.30 tomorrow morning. The police tracked the calls and they want to meet with us all there. Well, right? it, was, it was Halloween night. That, that's was what it? it was. It was, it was a hot because we used to have to, our deadlines were Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. Yep. And it was a Wednesday night of Halloween. And I think at that point, Rich and Archie, they left early because I think they went to a party. So Jill was in charge. I have a good memory. We, yeah. we were just fooling around and we started <laughs> randomly making these calls. Know, phony phone calls you know i think you so, made one or two of them too i just want yeah, to say it was yes nice. we, we we all did we all did so your dad, one of the, well your dad is terrified and he's yeah. like and i'm terrified and i'm like oh my god are we about to be expelled from college like am i about to be expelled from college because brad eubner is making prank radio calls? <laughs> and we get up to the review it's me it's brad it's your dad maybe the guy jason garber i think was there yeah. and we're still at 6 30 in the morning okay yeah and it turned out someone pranked us yeah. There were no police. It was yeah. just someone messing with us correctly. And uh, one of the most scary moments in my 
But we did, we did get yelled at. We did get yelled gotcha. at by Jill. She was very upset. But I do remember one of the phony phone calls was to the, the president of Delaware at the time was uh, David Rozell, who I think either came from Kentucky or left yeah. Kentucky. We did call his daughter. One of the calls was to his daughter. But <laughs> I do remember when it comes to Brad, because Jeff also was a visionary in a sense in that you struck up the friendship with Greg Burton on the radio. Oh, yeah. And Jeff oh. started, Jeff started oh. to do a sports radio show on Sunday mornings. Yeah. Okay. So we were upstairs listening to the sports radio show. So what would good colleagues and good friends do? Make phony phone calls. All the time. <laughs> I remember once when it was leading up to a week where the hens were going to play the Richmond Spiders. And Brad did a ridiculous, you know, voice about the Richmond Spiders and they're going to be scary. And it was, oh, it was yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. And I knew, because nobody listened. It was college radio. <laughs> nobody was listening. I had like a reach, a reach of about four blocks and yes. nobody was listening. And I get these calls and it would be like, we literally were downstairs. The radio station was downstairs. Newspapers upstairs. We were doing our show. And they'd be like, Kim from so-and-so is on the line. And I'm like, Ugh, who is this going to be? But I couldn't tell Greg because I felt so bad about this. And it would be like Laura from the review pretending she's like a jet fan from Massapequa. And it was like, it was so mortifyingly embarrassing. And I told, I had a tape of that for years. I lost yeah. all the calls. It was yeah. freaking gold. Anyway, it's very uh, good. Time. Was working for the review, was that when you made the decision that you wanted to pursue this professionally? Like how much fun so. you had? Yeah. And it was like, the thing about the review back then, like we were loaded. I mean, we were loaded. Like it was a lot of those people went into journalism. Um, you know, it was just it was a it was a real freaking legit hardcore, excellent college newspaper at a very high level. It really was. And I was applying for internships, and I got a bunch of internships while I was at the Review. And I felt like I the, the, the professors, whether you liked them, it was like this love hate with the professors, yeah. but they were really hard on you. And it just really felt. It's like my roommates are going to their accounting classes or their business classes, and I'm spending 70 hours a week at the review cutting my classes. Mm -hmm. And it just felt, you're there at three in the morning eating soggy pizza, listening to Nirvana, and just, it was like, it sounds like two old men talking about this glorious <laughs> time, but it actually was a glorious freaking time. And like, I hate that college newspapers don't have that same oomph anymore, because it's freaking awesome. It was just great. Well, what did the college newspapers remind you of now? Or like, have you been in a newsroom? Yeah, I, I advise a college newspaper out here in California. And um, it's just different because so much of it is based on online and it's an ongoing product. And we were, we were doing, which we were, it was always building toward a date. And it was mm -hmm. like, all right, this deadline, we got 10 minutes till we're going to lay this paper out. We got five minutes. You got to get this done. You got to get this done. There was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of sleepless nights. There was a lot of people. I didn't smoke at the time, but like people, I don't smoke now either, but people smoking cigarettes, like freaking out people losing hair, people, oh, like, yeah. it was just, it's like you remember the glorious days and you forget the nervousness of it all, but it was freaking intense, you know? Mm. Oh, I'll never forget one thing that you, you said to me and, and Jason Garber once, and, and it was right. It dawned on me the other day when I was, I was running in the park, you, you guys had talked about how great this was that, you know, we, we were actually kind of running the newspaper and we really never had this chance again in our lives. And it's, it's yep. so true. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, Jeff mentions about the sleepless nights. I think the only time I've pulled an all nighter that I can remember was the night that the hens beat Drexel 
to win the knack and and go to the NCAAs. It was yeah. a it was a Wednesday night the game. Wednesday was our deadline, and <laughs> they they left certain space for us. They sent the entire everything else was wrapped up. Jeff and I had to write you know game story and sidebars and stuff like that because they left certain pages and we'd have to get this to the printer first thing Thursday morning and the game ended probably around like nine o'clock we wrote all you know did all of our interviews and everything like that literally did not go to sleep that night I also want to say and this is kind of important because this is something like I think like so you asked me Matthew you asked me about um am I is it nerve-wracking like hanging out with Shaq or Kobe yeah, or whatever, yeah. like that kind of stuff I still maintain the most fun I've ever had covering a team or a sport was a year Delaware. We were at Delaware when Delaware made its first NCAA tournament ever. Yes. Okay. And they played in this crappy little field house yes. and you, there's nothing, there's no more organic feeling for me, at least in sports writing, when you attend a college and you're covering the team and you know, these guys, because you go to class with them or you see them and blah, blah, blah and you know, them behind the scenes. And it really feels like you're covering them. Like we were very, we, we were hard on teams. We did not just like praise them. We ripped players. We ripped coaches. I called for a coach to be fired at Delaware. Like we did yes, that. Yes, you did. Lauren that was Klein. a bad idea. Lauren, yeah, Lauren Klein, good. the men's soccer coach. No, no, you were right. You were right. Yeah, he, but I didn't. He I, was a horrible coach, did not know soccer. You were right. I was not the guy to write that column because I didn't Correct. write the game. Yeah. Correct. So, Correct. But like, your dad and I, we traveled to Dayton, Ohio. Yes. to cover the NCAA tournament. Now imagine being freaking us. Mm-hmm. Your dad's probably 21, I'm 20. We get a car in Dayton. You're staying in a hotel in Dayton. You show up on media day and you're surrounded by all the writers who you admire, your heroes. You're covering your team. And the funny thing about that, that I remember vividly, we're sitting courtside or whatever in our, our seat. It's Delaware playing Cincinnati. It's, uh, Delaware is a 14 seed. Right, 14 seed, 13. right? No, no, it was 4-13. Oh, it was a 4-13 yeah, yeah, yeah. game, right? Yeah. Cincinnati. Nobody knows that much about Cincinnati. Right. Like It's like Nick Van Exel and Corey Blount and Herb Jones. No, nobody knew them at all, no. which was no. the funny thing. They were like the sleeper of sleepers. Right. And we're like, <laughs> there was a part, if you went to Delaware, you're like, you know what, Delaware, man, we got a, look, we have a seven-footer at center, Spencer Dunkley. We got a front line. We have this freshman point guard who's really good. We could win this game. It was like, we could win this game. Game starts. I think Delaware was up six to two. Yes. Sitting there, right? Bob Huggins calls timeout. Cincinnati calls timeout. And it's like, holy shit, Delaware's going to beat Cincinnati. We're going to be here a while. Damn, we're going to be here a while. Dela- Delaware lost that game by 39. It was <laughs> ridiculous. They- Cincinnati's basically like, okay, we're going to start pressing now. Let's see how this goes. It was a massacre of epic proportions, but ridiculously cool to be there. Well, Huggins, um, brought, Huggins brought what's his name off the bench right after it was 6-2. He brought Van Exel in. Yes. Because Van, Van, Van Exel was, wasn't even a starter. No, and he was so ridiculous. He was like, we're like showing up with like Brian Pearl, our all-county point guard from Pennsylvania, <laughs> and they're bringing Nick Van Exel who's about to spend yeah. 15 years in the NBA. Yeah. Um, it's ridiculous. Wait, I hate to say this. I hate to say this. I have another interview I got to do. Oh, yeah, yeah. This has been one of the most fun I've had so far. <laughs> and I just want to say, I'm being serious. Your dad is a freaking legend. Oh, that was a great writer. He made a huge, I don't care, whatever, you don't have to say anything. Yeah. He's made a huge impact in my career and a huge impact. And I do not forget it. I've never forgotten it. So hopefully you can be half the man of your dad. <laughs>
<laughs> well, thank you much, Jeff, and best of luck with this book. And I can't, I can't wait for Bo Jackson. And oh, yeah, I, I want to, I want to DM you about that because I think the the, the Tecmo Bowl aspect you need to hit because that hundred percent. I agree, hundred percent. I agree. So it's where can before you go? Where can everyone find your book? Amazon or Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, your local bookstore. It's you know, it's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. Congratulations! I'm not saying that cockily. I didn't mean to. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Thank you guys so much. You're, right. That was awesome. Seriously. And yeah, I just yeah. want to say, can you guys are in high school? That's one of the best interviews I've done. So great job. Seriously. Thank you. We appreciate it. All right. See you guys. Dan, All right. Take care, Jeff. Good All seeing right. you. Yeah, you too. Right. Bye, guys.